0: You're listening to the free, abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into uh, related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For April 19th, 2017, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. Even after years of talk about the need for new utility business models in the face of energy transition, and untold conference presentations and articles and reports and studies about it, the actual progress that has been made is less than stellar. To be sure, there are some standout leaders in energy transition in the U.S., such as California, New York, and Hawaii, where there have been some strong efforts made to change the way the utilities are compensated, to help utilities find new ways to maintain cash flow and profitability, even as they're selling less energy over time, and so on. And, as we have discussed in previous episodes, there have been some more structural improvements in the utility sector in countries like Denmark and Germany. But here in the U.S., if we just look at the generation side of the business, and particularly the merchant generation business where plant owners only get paid for selling electricity, it looks like we still don't really have a plan for phasing out old nuclear, coal, and gas plants gracefully. Instead, the owners of those plants fight to stay alive until they run out of options. Then they just shut the plants down and take their losses. And I suppose that's fair enough. That's capitalism for you. Still, it seems to me that if we're gonna be honest with ourselves about where we're going, if we admit that the energy transition is happening and will continue to happen until it's complete, then we could take a more deliberate approach and figure out how to scale up renewables and efficiency and other alternatives in concert with retiring old plants. And while I haven't done the analysis on the question, my guess is that it would be cheaper for ratepayers overall if we offered the owners of unwanted power plants some compensation for retiring them rather than paying lawyers to fight out solutions. Meanwhile, the independent power producers' fight for survival goes on. In this episode, we'll take a look at some of the strategies that those on the losing end of energy transition in the U.S. are taking to try to keep their plants alive and what the implications of those strategies are for consumers and for the project of energy transition as a whole. There is an interesting web of legal, technical, and economic implications here, and we've got one of the sharpest young minds in the biz to help us sort it out, Gavin Bade, an editor at Utility Dive. Then in the news segment, we'll take a look at the likely effects of President Trump's rollback of climate policies, the continually improving outlook for renewable power and the continuing troubles for coal power in India, the bankruptcy of Westinghouse and what it means for the future of nuclear power globally, and whether the electric car maker Faraday actually has a future, plus a nice follow-up to episode 39 on Australia. But first, we'll talk with Gavin Bade. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Gavin, to the Energy Transition Show.
1: Thanks so much, Chris. I'm happy to be here.
0: So there's a lot I want to talk with you about today, but I just think I'd like to start with the central issue and then perhaps work our way outward. And that central issue is that owners of conventional coal and nuclear generators, especially merchant generators, have not figured out how to keep their plants running as the economics of those plants have been undercut by cheap natural gas, wind, and solar plants. So whenever these coal and nuclear plants have to compete head to head with gas, wind, or solar, and of course, let's not forget efficiency, they lose, and they get retired. The only plants that don't seem to be in immediate jeopardy now are the ones in regulated states where they're part of a vertically integrated utility business that can pass the cost directly along to consumers and then earn a regulated return no matter what. And although the trend of retiring uncompetitive plants generally means cheaper power for consumers, The owners of those plants have been agitating for all sorts of ways to stay in business. So I wanna go through those. And the first one is to just reform the wholesale markets by including various kinds of payments, like capacity payments just to keep the plants available, even if they're not actually generating power, or premiums for plant characteristics like reliability or zero carbon generation, or some other way of paying must run baseload plants on above market rate, or simply giving the plant operators longer term contracts to insulate them from the changes that are happening very quickly all around them. And, you know, let's face it, these changes are happening far more quickly than the typical state utility business was ever set up to accommodate. So let's explore these ideas a bit. First of all, let's look at it from the perspective of the generators. Do they really think these kinds of market reforms will see them through the transition, or are they just looking for a short term fix to their immediate woes?
1: Well, from the generator perspective, I think something is better than nothing, right? They see a lot of upheavals all over the nation in these organized markets, and I think they, at least from a financial perspective, think if they can keep these plants online for a little bit longer, it will give them time to diversify into different parts of the market or just kind of depreciate their investments over a longer term. From their standpoint, I think I'm not so sure what their end game is, but I think if they can get a few million dollars here and there to keep their plants operating, they'll certainly push for it, right? A cynic could call it classic rent-seeking behavior. But from the generator's perspective, they say, you know, we offer these communities a lot of benefits, whether it's simply jobs and a tax base to whether it's a rural community or any community that has one of these plants in it. And then in the case of the nuclear plants, offering a lot of zero carbon generation. And that's where I see especially in some of these more progressive states where you see around market actions being taken, places like New York. That's really the motivation for it from a policy standpoint is a main motivation, at least, is the zero carbon attributes and making sure that all those nuclear plants don't go offline. Because usually when that happens, they will be replaced with natural gas, which, of course, emits carbon dioxide, unlike the nuclear plants.
0: Well, yeah, that's a fair point, except that they weren't agitating for a special premium for providing Clean power until they got into economic trouble. I mean, this is an ex post argument.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's what you hear a lot of the independent generators saying in these markets is that not only is it kind of unfair because, as you said, this is an ex post argument, their big argument is that it's going to distort price formation in the organized markets and could actually lead to an unraveling of the market construct. We're going to see federal regulators take a look at this next month. Uh, At the beginning of May, FERC is going to hold a technical conference where they have stakeholders from all of these organized markets come together and talk about these issues and try to propose solutions. So we're going to be watching that very closely at Utility Dive when that happens. But in terms of – are you asking – Do you Is it fair for these people to support these baseload plants? And I think that that's probably a question that's up to each of these political communities, whether it's a state or kind of as a regional market, to decide for themselves. I mean, every state has their own values for why they support a certain fuel mix, right? Some states want to have more clean generation. Some states want to support jobs. Whether it's fair or not is kind of like is more of subservient to the question of the values and the political power that can be brought to bear. I think from at least like a real politics standpoint.
0: Okay. So these market reforms may make the power plant owners happy or even satisfy the domestic constituency in a certain state. But it's hard to see any justification from the perspective of the public, from the the perspective. I mean, just two weeks ago, the Montana legislature endorsed a bill that would allow the state to loan Talon Energy, the owner of a coal plant there, $10 million a year to keep the plant running for the next five years until 2022 when the plant is scheduled to retire. Now, this is a merchant generator, and they can't pass their costs on to customers like a regulated utility can. And the plant is losing a reported $30 million a year. And they say that if they don't get that loan, the plant could close as soon as this year. Okay, so too bad for them. That's capitalism. But should Montanans really be interested in supporting this plant? Should they be so concerned about the reliability of their power that they're willing to take that risk? And should they really think that if they loan this company $50 million that they'll get paid back? Well, I'm not sure
1: if they can expect to get paid back. But I think, you know, if a talent operator or a talent engineer was sitting here in the room with us, they would say that our generator offers a lot of benefits to the Montanans. They would say, first of all, the fuel diversity, you know, making sure that we have reliable baseload generation in the state is something that these generators often point to. And then they would say, you know, perhaps if you look at some – natural gas forecast look out to the next 10 years, they could make an argument that it could be cheaper over over the next five years to keep it open. I'm not sure if Talon has made that argument. It's difficult to sell that argument when you, you say that you're also losing $10 million a year. But then I think they would also say, you know, lean on the political argument of this is Montana jobs and they support this community and the tax base is huge and kind of go back to that localized jobs argument that we see the coal industry resorting to all over the nation. But from the standpoint of, is Montana's reliability going to be compromised if this coal plant closes? I mean, that depends kind of who you ask. In my opinion, I don't think so. But certainly, there are many people who would argue with that point.
0: That matches up with my perception as well. You know, it's always easy to make the argument about the tax base and the jobs and so on. You can make that argument on the basis of no data. You can make that argument on the basis of no research, no evidence, no nothing. It's just a populist appeal, What you don't actually have in any of these cases that I've looked at is a well-constructed, well-supported, evidentiary argument that reliability is actually at stake.
1: Yeah, I haven't seen that, especially in organized markets when you see these plant operators coming and asking for support. That was the big argument back when First Energy and AEP in Ohio First put forth a plan to subsidize a group of coal and nuclear plants. I think there were eight in all. And they said, Well, we in the Ohio market we need to value fuel diversity. So we see natural gas capacity increasing a lot in the PJM interconnection, and we don't want to become too reliant on that. You remember the polar vortex when, you know, we had some problems with the freezing temperatures, making the gas plants unavailable because literally the gas lines would freeze. And this was their argument was, well, we need to have coal plants on the system ready to go, just Whoa. in case something like that. That happens again. And they made this argument in front of the Public Utilities Commission. And always kind of lurking in the background was the point well, We don't take care of reliability on a state-by-state basis in Ohio anymore. PJM, they ensure reliability and they were always saying that reliability in Ohio is not going to be threatened even if these coal plants do shut down. There have been a number of market reforms put into place since the polar vortex to make sure that you have firm gas capacity contracts because sometimes what would happen, what happened during that year, that very cold winter, I believe of what, 2013, 2014. You just had residential home heating demand go up so much that if you didn't have a firm contract for your gas plant supply, some some plants had trouble getting the fuel that they needed to run. So, you saw some reliability challenges then. Certainly, I don't think it's as big of an issue now, and the reserve margin is a little bit better in the market as well, so as you said, it doesn't stop these generators from making the argument.
0: Yeah, and I recall back in that polar vortex winter, there were actually coal plants that couldn't operate either because the piles of coal froze solid and they couldn't actually (laughs) physically move it into the furnace. (laughs)
1: Yeah, I've heard about that happening at a couple plants as well. And I think that the point is that, you know, there are supply issues with any of these. When we saw a few years ago as well, when there was a lot of oil traffic on railroads coming out of North Dakota, South Dakota, and that region, some coal plants were concerned about not getting their coal shipments by rail so all of these plants they all have supply issues going back to the original point of what the justification is for these around market subsidies when you kind of cut through all of the arguments at the end of the day and the you know one side says this one side says that it kind of does come back to the classic rent-seeking behavior and I think that Ohio gives you a very good example of that so what happened in Ohio was eventually First Energy and AEP were able to win support for that group of coal and nuclear plants and then FERC, the Federal Energy Regulators, they stepped in and said, this is not permissible. They've stepped in and blocked the subsidies from happening. First Energy and AEP then said, okay, well, we're going to go back and we're going to revise our proposals. AEP actually sold off some of the plants. I mean they came back. First Energy's request was simply a you know a capital infusion. Give us some money so that we can continue to operate and our borrowing costs don't go up. And now they're looking at getting legislative subsidies for their nuclear plants. They just introduced a bill for that this week. And AEP is actually you know, mulling a bill, trying to get support for a bill to completely re-regulate the Ohio market. So when they failed on the merits of their arguments for reliability and fuel diversity, or when they weren't able to pass muster with the federal regulators, they kind of just threw up their hands and said, well, we just want to go back to being fully regulated anyway. I think it's a classic case of... We talked to some lawyers at a Washington law firm, Wilkinson Barker-Nauer, and one of their senior advisors named Ray Gifford, he used to be the chair of the Colorado Public Utilities Commission. And his point is always that we have to think about if we actually do want markets for power generation, because it seems like we want to preordain the outcome of these markets, whether it's from a fuel diversity perspective or from an environmental perspective with the nuclear plants, ensuring low carbon generation, feeding in subsidies for wind and solar. A lot of times we have policy outcomes that we want from these markets before we ever set them up. If you want a preordained outcome from a market, should you even be setting up a market anyway or should you just go back to kind of centralized planning through IRPs and public utilities commissions? That's kind of a high level question and I don't think many states outside of Ohio are looking at re-regulating, but that's the worry is that you know if if we do start to see problems with price formations in the organized markets, if we do see maybe Ohio move on re-regulation maybe pass a bill for it, that could be the first in a few dominoes that could drop. So I think that there are some people who are getting sort of concerned about the organized market construct as a general idea, especially in the Eastern interconnect where we see some of these problems.
0: Yeah. And I have some other comments teed up to talk about those, Yeah, you know, that re-regulation approach. I think it's also worthwhile just to take a moment to think about the wholesale power market operator perspective here. I mean, it sounds like the ISOs and the RTOs like PJM believe that they can successfully tweak the markets as they go through the transition. But I wonder if that's actually true. I mean, we've seen quite a bit of generation fail to clear capacity auctions in recent years. And the low demand growth and cheap gas have also acted to keep capacity prices down in markets like the PJM and the Northeast ISO. So, you know, I wonder if that approach works. I mean, what are your thoughts on this? Do you think the wholesale market operators really see themselves being able to ride through the transition, tweaking things as they go? Or do you sense a different tone lately? And, you know, I'll just note briefly here that in its State of the Market 2016 report, the independent market monitor for PJM said that it was strongly opposed to nuclear subsidies, saying that they pose a threat to the competitiveness and reliability of the overall PJM market and set up a discriminatory regime that is not consistent with competition and that they would much rather prefer a carbon tax that could benefit all clean power producers equally.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's a general consensus that we see across the power sector is that people would like a a carbon tax or a price on carbon to support kind of as a more direct economic incentive than a lot of these around market mechanisms. But that's probably not forthcoming. We see the phantom of the conservative carbon tax come up in Washington. People write think pieces about it, but I don't think we're going to see anything like that. To your question on whether the ISOs and RTOs think that they can successfully tweak themselves through this transition, when I talk to them, people still seem relatively upbeat. I was talking to Gordon Van Welly, who's the CEO of ISO New England, just last week, and he's getting ready to unveil a series of kind of fixes to the capacity market that he thinks will help clear more generation and keep more plants online going forward. He wouldn't tell me exactly what the contours of that plan were going to be because they weren't ready to release it until the FERC technical conference that I mentioned that's coming up the beginning of next month. But I think that the organized market operators themselves have a lot of faith in the market construct and they think that they can tweak it to compensate for these around market activities, and every market is a little bit different, right? They have different subsidies. From you know, Massachusetts is mandating the purchase of you know hydro generation from Canada, and in Texas you have you know they built out the competitive renewable energy zone uh, transmission lines to re- to interconnect a lot more wind. That's a different kind of around market activity. So I think you see these in all of the different markets, and they think they're going to be able to handle it. The question is how, and I haven't really heard from really anyone how you could tweak a capacity market to make sure that there's no negative pricing, short of repealing all of these subsidies, which, of course, these ISOs and RTOs can't do themselves.
0: Yeah, that's right. They can't. And I do want to dig into this sort of around market question a little more. But first, just one more point, and that is, Do we even need to ask how the builders and operators of wind and solar and natural gas plants feel about this changing the market rules to specifically favor existing coal and nuclear plants? I mean, as you were saying a minute ago, some of these markets were set up to obtain a certain outcome. And then we have sort of the temerity to say, oh, well, we're not picking winners.
1: Yeah. The entire
0: market structure is designed to pick a winner.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. The full episode covers much more. In order to hear the rest, point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and become a member. Annual subscriptions start at just $60 a year, and monthly subscriptions are also available. It's like subscribing to your favorite magazine or newspaper, but we prefer to think of it as buying us a pint once a month as a way of saying thanks. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free, and always will be. So if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. So please join us today and support our advertising-free show featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. As expected, President Trump signed an executive order designed to overturn President Obama's climate policies, including the Clean Power Plan. Now, the potential effects of the executive order and the litigation that it will probably spawn is a very complicated subject, one which we'll address in another episode in the near future. But for now, I'll just note that there are a good many state and local hurdles that would have to be crossed to have any effect, and that several legal challenges to Trump's order were filed immediately, and that state-level efforts to transition away from coal are unlikely to change much in the foreseeable future." Taylor Kirkendall, who you'll remember from episode 18, wrote that most of the power industry representatives interviewed for his SNL article said that their scheduled coal plant retirements would proceed on schedule for at least the next three years. And as we explained in the very first episode of this podcast, the coal mining industry isn't coming back for lots of reasons that have nothing to do with the regulations Trump is trying to overturn, no matter what empty promises he may have made to miners. However, as Ben Castleman pointed out in 538, if Trump's rollback sticks, it could slow the decline of coal power in the U.S. over the longer term. Mm -hmm. Item 2. India's power minister, Piyush Goyal, has said that he expects 60 to 65 percent of the country's installed power generation capacity will be green energy, based on record low prices for wind and solar power obtained in recent auctions there, although he didn't say when. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com, and follow us on Twitter at transitionshow. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.